0: listening to splush a podcast on singapore poetry literature and other obsessions worth showing today an interview with theophilus quack author of giving ground and moving house among others
1: 2000s Tumblr. Yes. um yeah i tried to keep one <laughs> yeah exactly um so some things don't change right
0: cool. okay, so um i guess we can start Yes. Hi everybody, this is Sploosh. (laughs) I'm Sarah. And I'm Laura Jane. And we're here
2: today with Theophilus Quek.
1: Hello, hello. Yes, thanks for having me.
2: So I think we'll start by reading um, Theo's bio. Theophilus Quek is a writer and editor based in Singapore. He has been shortlisted twice for the Singapore Literature Prize and won the New Poets Prize for his pamphlet, The First Five Storms. He writes widely on the issues of migration and citizenship, and his most recent poetry collection, Moving House, is published by Carcanet Press. So now that we've gotten <laughs> the official bio out of the way, maybe you want to give us your own self-introduction.
1: Okay, yes. Hello. Um, I'm not very sure how I would describe myself, actually. I think these days um, I tell people I write for a living, but that's not strictly true. Most of what I write at work are emails. Um, I am just someone who enjoys writing and teaching writing, um, and also talking about writing. So I guess, yeah, that can be the basis of today's conversation.
2: Yeah, Yeah. out of all the poems you've written, um, would you say you have a poem that best describes your life right now?
1: So I actually brought a poem that I read rather than a poem that I've written. Um, And it's a poem called A Clock in the Square by Adrian Rich. And I'll just read the poem first and then talk a little bit about it. A Clock in the Square. This handless clock stares blindly from its tower, refusing to acknowledge any hour. But what can one clock do to stop the game? when others go on striking just the same. Whatever might of truth the gesture held, time may be silenced, but will not be stilled. Nor we absolved by anyone's withdrawing from all the restless ways we must be going and all the rings in which we have spun and swirled, whether around a clock face or a world. It's a a really short poem, um, but I think it sort of cuts to the heart of Adrienne Rich's work, Um, she was um, a very important campaigner, feminist um, and uh, social justice writer. And all of her work was premised on the idea that her writing was a way of making an intervention in the world, a world that she cared deeply about, a world that was comprised of her friends and those whose lives were vivid and rich and close to hers, but also a world that held a lot of injustice. And I think this poem for me, Sort of calls out this the central question that i'm grappling with um, which is what does it mean um, to have a voice in the world what does it mean to um, be able to have a platform and the means and the words to intervene in conversations that are going around me um, what does it mean to um, be able to say something to and about um, what i observe in the world whether that's something that is that garners grace and praise or something that that's not um, and is deeply wrong. I think this, this poem also calls out the question of um, are we actually allowed to not say anything about the, the, about the injustices in the world around us? Mm. Um, uh, in the poem, she writes, "You know, what can one clock do to stop the game when others go on striking just the same? And the image here of a clock that refuses to chime um, and yet, of course, time still goes on is a very powerful one. Um, and the question is, well, you know, for all our railing against the world, for all the poems that we write, are we actually making any difference about the problems around us? The answer that she provides within the poem is not entirely a comforting one. Um, the answer that she provides is that we aren't absolved um, by withdrawing from all the ways in which we must be going about our, our business, right? We aren't let off the hook if, if we decide to not do anything about it. Um, it doesn't tell us that we have a positive duty to do so but it does tell us that we have no excuse not to Um, and I think that's that's sort of what I'm just living with right now I think for lots of us who write in in Singapore um, we come from positions of privilege certainly in the fact of writing itself we have a voice and we have a platform and the question is what are we going to do about it are we allowed to sort of sit back and not use it Um, or is there some sort of a calling or an expectation to do so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was an overly long, overly <laughs> no serious self-introduction. Um, but yes, that's me. Apart from that, um, I really enjoy my coffee. I enjoy kaya waffles in the morning. I recently discovered a place near my near my work um, that that sells them. I'm very happy about this. Um, I, on the whole, am a dog person, but I'm not averse to cats. Yeah.
2: Oh, it's very comprehensive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, um, speaking of yourself, what are you reading right now?
1: I am reading a book called Super Infinite. Um, and I've posted about this several times on Instagram. So any of my trusty followers out there, all five of you, um, will probably know I'm talking about a book that's a biography of John Donne, a poet. And I first encountered Donne's work when I was studying him for A-levels. Um, I probably understood only about 40% of it. I don't think that percentage has gone up by very much, but it's a really cool book about his life. I've also recently finished reading um, a book by Christian Wyman, the poet, Wyman, women. Um, never really knew how to pronounce that actually. And uh, he's also a writer whom I first encountered when I was about 18 and grappling with the questions of what does it mean to be a writer. Um, and his earlier book of essays called My Bright Abyss um, uh, spoke to a lot of those questions that I had at the time. Um, his recent books about uh, writing and Faith, and his most recent collection, which is called Survival is a Style, yeah, have been my companions over the last few weeks.
0: And just sort of like jumping off of that, right? Mm. What does it mean to you to be a writer?
1: I think for me, um, the writing itself is not the point. Okay. Right? Um, I think for me, being a writer is simply being in possession of a, a certain toolbox mm-hmm. that you have mm-hmm. by... No real merit of your own had the chance to sharpen and use. Um, and also, you happen to be in the right place and time to use this set of tools. Yes. Um, to me, that's what, what it means to be a writer. So finding these tools in your hands, what do you do with them? Do you use them to build a house or do you use them to tear one down? Mm. Right. Um, yeah, to me, honestly, it's, it's, it's not about writing for all. It's worse, um, I could have been a singer. Um, <laughs> uh, thank God I didn't choose that path. Yeah.
0: And just sort of, do you think that like intersects in like your public and private life, or like sort of in your day job versus you know your your writing job?
1: Yeah, I think for me, um, the the day job. So I'm I'm fortunate to work in a place where I think I am able to make some change in the world. Um, uh, I was I was keen to take up a job like that. Um, The the idea of being a corporate lawyer or like someone working for a consultancy. Um, chills me to the bones Um, and and I'm I'm glad to work in a place where I think I do have some impact Um, but of course impact takes on many different colours, shades many different spheres whether I'm at my day job making that kind of change um, through through policy work or I'm out of my day job writing a poem to me it's all part of the same enterprise the same endeavour it's about making a change in the world making the world a place that Aligns better, that rhymes better, mm. um, a place that is a little bit more just and balanced. Yeah, that happens in different ways, whether it's by um, writing an angry email at work or writing an angry poem at home. Mm. Yeah,
0: and I guess sort of like maybe appealing to like the writerly part of you. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted to ask you about singlet.
2: Yeah. So. Singlet has come to be defined as a very broad sort of genre. And in fact, you know, a lot of people can't quite define what exactly constitutes singlet. So, you know, there can be stories set overseas, but written by Singapore writers, or stories written about Singapore, written by foreign writers in Singapore. So, um, you know, as a poet who's written a lot about your experiences in Singapore, but also overseas, I think especially from your university days, Um, How do you think the subject matter or the voices that inhabit Singlet will change in the future?
1: Well, so this is an age-old, complicated question. I'll try not to spend too much time on it. But really, what is Singapore? Um, Is Singapore a place? Is Singapore an idea? Is Singapore a construct? My, My idea of Singapore is probably very different from your idea of Singapore. And that's the point of a nation, right? That you and this bunch of strangers sort of come together and think you're thinking about the same thing. And uh, the whole um, uh, idea of singlet as well, I think, has been debated to death. But to me, it simply means um, sort of any piece of writing that has been um, inflected by Singapore in some way. Um, So um, it's not really about the identity of the author. It's not really about the context of the poem. Um, Singapore as an idea has had um, an, an impact on lots of writers who um, may not even be writing about Singapore per se. I think William Gibson's essay, Singapore, you know, Disneyland with the Death Penalty, that is a piece of singlet because it's a piece of writing, well, creative, some say a bit too creative, nonfiction that has been influenced by the idea of Singapore and response to Singapore. So um, so to me, that's, that's sort of the broad agnostic sense in which singlet exists. And to me, it's, it's not... Um, Necessarily worthwhile, I think. Uh, thinking about what what constitutes or defining this to to uh, sharply, yeah. To me, as a writer who happens to find himself in Singapore and who happens to have communities in Singapore whom I live in, depend on, and love, I think um, I can't help but write Singlet just as well. Yeah.
0: And I guess sort of like you know, knowing that you have like a background in history, does like inspecting this issue um, as a history student, how do you feel about that? Like, you know, coming from the identity of a history student?
1: Yeah, so I think, um, well, the idea of Singapore history um, has been much contested in in recent years. Um, No thanks, of course, to the the various big anniversaries that we've been having. Um, But for me, history is the, the practice or the discipline of surfacing different perspectives on living, um, and different ways of living. Um, an old uh, professor of mine once said that history is um, all about constructing an inventory of alternatives. Right? Mm-hmm. It's about understanding how people used to live, how un- understanding how people used to dream of living, um, and by resurrecting those possibilities, telling us in the present day that it doesn't have to be this way. Um, it could have been another way. There were all these other dreams, there were all these other doors closed or opened. Um, And to me, I think that applies to Singapore as well. Um, We live in one version of Singapore. Um, We all live in our own version of Singapore and that adds up to the version of Singapore we have today. But this is a Singapore that could have been in many other versions. There could have been many other product releases along the way. Um, Many, many product upgrades. um, And uh, many ways in which... Uh, this product could have succeeded or failed as well, um, whatever that means to to you as an individual. So, so I think to me, history and thinking about Singapore's many pasts are also about thinking about Singapore's many possible presents.
0: Yeah. And maybe perhaps you know, maybe we can move away from just Singapore. <laughs> interrogating history. Yeah, um, maybe a li- something a little bit more personal. Like, um, well, we we heard, or rather, a little birdie told us <laughs> that you had a very Disciplined writing schedule in university—is that true? No. And is that why you're so prolific?
1: <laughs> okay, so actually, I I, I don't think you're moving that far away at all because okay. I think I think those things I think those things are linked. Um, uh, poetry for me gives gives a way of exploring those possibilities that I just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I well for context, I went to university overseas, and I think you know for lots of Singaporean writers who spend time abroad, it's a cliche by now um, <laughs> to say that oh the distance has given me a new perspective on Singapore and indeed I think the distance does um, force you to think about those possibilities right because it takes you away from the current version version 1.0 of Singapore that you're most used to so so with that distance you know you're like hang on is this really what I remember about Singapore is this really the way Singapore is right now or could it have shifted in my absence you know um, so, yes, during the time I was away, I, I wrote quite compulsively. It helped <laughs> that um, the, the fees that, that were, you know, the university fees um, where I studied were, seemed mostly to go to my library subscription. Um, and most of the rest of the time, I found myself in attending lectures that weren't really related to my subjects, um, hanging out in pubs and cafes, um, writing or finding ways to write. And I did have a fairly disciplined schedule of sitting down every other Thursday morning in the same seats in the same cafe and not letting myself get up uh, until I'd finished the draft of a poem. Mm. Um, and what this sort of forced me to do was to look for fresh material because mm. I would sit down and face a blank page um, and the two pound uh, cup of coffee that I bought would already be steadily diminishing. Um, and you just you just have to write something before you reach the bottom of the class. And, um, and that sort of forced me to look at what had happened during the week, um, claw through the pages of my history syllabus, uh, scroll Facebook. Yes, I still use <laughs> Facebook, um, till I reach uh, a headline that jumps out at me. Um, or, uh, yeah, or simply sort of think about stories from childhood that, that might provide some fodder. And, and that, was, that sort of allowed me to um, exit the comfort zone of what I would normally write about and find, um, as some may say, new inspiration. <laughs> yeah,
2: Yeah. I guess, you know, you can't just be waiting for inspiration mm. to strike. You have to sort of force yourself to get something out. But is, do you still have like a similarly disciplined, rigorous writing schedule now?
1: <laughs> Alas to my shame, no. Um, I am now very much a public holiday writer. Um, and we had a few near the beginning of the year, and those were fantastic, but I don't think we'll have another one for a while. I'm um, a bit sad about that. It, it really takes quite a lot more discipline these days to sort of um, clear the schedule and, and put aside other things. But this is also the reason why I'm not a novelist, because it would. <laughs> It would simply be impossible, I think, with, with the current work schedule, to write anything that's not a poem or an essay. Um, prose actually lends itself better, I find, to the writing life because um, it's much easier to add or subtract a few sentences on the bus home or in between emails um, than it is to sort of take a poem from draft to completion. Um, I think that requires a lot more dedicated hours um, in a block um, and in sort of the right kind of context, that it's it's hard to achieve at work. Um, That's it. Well, I, I do. Um, yeah, I'm also because I'm quite a, a solitary writer. So so it does mean that I have to find sort of time alone and away from everything else, and a solid chunk of those few hours to be able to produce something. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and just sort of like re-selfishly asking for myself like how do you how do you actually like carve out the time because i mean before you arrive we're just talking about like how how you just seem <laughs> to like be able to squeeze out time from your like super packed schedule so just how do, do everything yeah how do you how do you like carve out the time to actually sit down and write because you know as as doesn't, a student as doesn't five, everyone so else hard.
1: To have 72 hours it's as well? so <laughs> hard
0: like do you just like you know like turn off your devices do you like how do you do it?
1: <laughs> okay, so my phone, well, um, and I think my, my fiancé will um, probably recognize this, but my phone is usually on flight mode. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. That's
0: not normal. <laughs> um,
1: and I, I try to pack replying to messages mm. into half-hour pockets. Um, so, Or, or say 15-minute pockets. So if I know that a bus is arriving in 15 minutes, then I will... Turn off the flight mode. Mm. The messages will pour in. I'll spend fifteen minutes replying to all of them, and then it goes back on flight mode. Mm. So I don't constantly get notifications.
0: Not chronically online.
1: Not chronically online. Um, I, I think it, it, it also involves scheduling ahead. Mm. Um, so I, I will, sort of put blocks in my in my calendar and my schedule um, where I where nothing else is allowed to intrude. Mm. Um, sometimes, of course, I mean you know i i don't really have control over anything else in the world mm. so sometimes life happens and then that block of time disappears and you might not get another one for 6 7 weeks and that's just too bad just means that you weren't meant to write that poem it's true yeah true. and that's and that's fine um, i think at this well, i don't want to sound very old but at this point in my writing life i i, I don't really think that i have to write that poem anymore. Mm, mm. Um, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. You know, the world's not a better or worse place without it. Someone else will write it, whatever. Um, and, and even if they don't, it's it's fine. Um, I, I believe very much that at the point that you're writing, if you have something to say, it matters because you wrote it at that point in time. Um, and, and after that happens and the poem goes out into the world. It takes on a life of its own. It's no longer yours. It doesn't matter if you wrote it or someone else did. So to me, really, there's not there's not much loss of sort of missing the moment. And I don't go like, ah, oh, you know, I had such a good idea three weeks ago, and I never got to write it down because, you know, if you didn't, I guess it wasn't that good an idea after sure. all. Yeah, and um, and that's fine. Yeah.
2: With so that sort of mindset, do you think the subject matter of your poetry has also changed?
1: Um. <laughs> Maybe it's well. Actually, that's a really good question. Maybe it links because I've been writing a lot about loss and impermanence. <laughs> um, Whoa. Yeah, um, I well, I think subject matter comes and comes and goes. Um, it's quite seasonal as well. Mm. Um, and I've said this to lots of people now that I think right the current project that I'm in mm. or the bigger project I'm in involves the the changing of the Singapore landscape. Um, this is suddenly very like throwback to the '90s because I know Elvin Pang and everyone else has done that already, but I think we are sort of in a new wave of um, of relocations and dislocations in the Singapore landscape with very different drivers, right? So beyond the the passing of an older generation and also the passing of an older generation of infrastructure, mm-hmm. think about Golden Mile, think about the Santo Summer Lion, think about. Estates like Dawson and Tanglin Hall, which have been searched. Um, it's also about individual landscapes that are lost. Think about um, workplace accidents among migrant workers. Think about um, dormitories that became overcrowded, um, taken down, repurposed. Think about landscapes that were grown over and then mown down again during COVID. A very different set of drivers to the changing Singapore landscape. It's not so much about the loss of tradition the loss of shop houses mm. um, that so many people are writing about in the 90s and, and, and late 80s. I think it's much more today about a younger generation that grew up in the post, um, post-developmental sort of stage of Singapore, mm. being confronted with the fact that Singapore is still being pulled from under their feet mm. um, and the many uh, harms um, that, and losses that are occasioned by this. Mm. So, so that's the current project. Um it actually involves me going to sit in Kopitiam's in Tangling Hall quite a lot oh. and, and in other places um, that have been lost or lost to time. And um, yeah. Yeah, I finish a tasty a lot faster than a cup of coffee. So it just forces me to write quicker. Oh. Yeah.
0: And does, is is this like this, the same process that you use for all your past collections, or you know, like um, tying it to like a physical locale or
1: okay, so when I mean when my first For the first book, which um, I was, of course, still in in school at the time, and I had a notebook. Um, But since then, I've not had a notebook. So very different sort of process. I think, you know, when... At least when I was in secondary school or JC, um, this this notebook really allowed me to be like a magpie, to sort of like collect different things that people say during the day or like, you know, things that I remember. And I've just been reading that in John Donne's time in the 16th century... They would call these books uh, commonplace books. Mm. And a commonplace book was, you know, a folio or a folder of just all these little scraps that you collect. It's it's quite mid-2000s Tumblr. Yes. Um, yeah. I tried to keep one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so some things don't change, right? Mm. So, so as a teenager, I, I had a notebook and I put lots of stuff in there. I also had a blog spot with very embarrassing music that <laughs> came on when you arrived on the page. Um, and... And yeah, but since, since then, I, I, the notebook hasn't been such an integral part of the process. I think today I'm a lot better at just letting things go and then finding new stuff or trusting that new stuff will turn up. Yeah, something new must come up.
0: And sort of like looking back to maybe like your, your past collections, right? Um, which, which of your collections is your favourite and which is your least favourite?
1: Well, um, and this is actually quite an easy question to answer. Because my favourite collection will always be the most recent one. And my least favourite one will always be the oldest one. Um, the very first one, yes. Um, I, and that's just because, you know, you become a different person as after the book is published. And, and, and thankfully so, if you're still the same person that you were at 18, something would be very wrong. Um, so, so it's good. It's good that... That I've changed, that the poems have changed, that the books have changed. Um, I, I still quite like the most recent collection. I don't have that many gripes about it, mm-hmm. apart from the fact that, um, fun story, I forgot to put in a contents page. Uh, yeah, so, so Moving House does not have a contents page. I and even the, the everybody, launches. the publisher, <laughs> editor, and I only noticed this after it was printed. So we were like, oh, well, that's fine, people would just have to the pages, yeah.
0: Yeah, it adds to the experience. Oh, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, um, and and I, I still quite like the themes and ideas that are explored in Moving House. Um, yeah, well soon I guess I'll have to like the next one.
0: Yeah, and okay. well, Moving House was published overseas, right? So, you know, maybe jumping off of that, like having published both in Singapore and overseas, how do you feel like the industry and the market is different, maybe?
1: Mm. Well, both the Singaporean poetry scene and that of the UK has been swamped. Maybe that's too harsh a word. <laughs> has been infiltrated, also quite a harsh word. Um, but certainly by a process of slow and gentle osmosis, at the very least, has become much more taken with contemporary American poetry and mm. poetics. right? And Um, This is not to ignite a culture war debate. That's not where this is going. Mm -hmm. It's more that I think there are today a lot more similarities between these poetry markets simply by the the fact of circulation, right? Um, Everybody has the same sort of foundational Ocean Vuong experience. Um, Actually, and this wasn't too different because, you know, when I started writing, it was the foundational Richard Saigon experience. And, uh, and today, it's sort of the same set of starter texts that everybody reads, whether you're, you're starting to write in the UK or in Singapore or in, in the US, mm-hmm. at least as far as Anglophone writing goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it is Ocean Vuong, you know, the child of a refugee who is yet very much um, a representative of contemporary American, uh, poetics in, in terms of his his style and his concerns um, and the sort of foregrounding of, of his voice, I think that says something to our moments and that's something to celebrate. And yet, um, I think what's different uh, is that lots of the writing in Singapore, um, while very heavily influenced by contemporary trends, does not have so much of an awareness of tradition. Um, and this is both a good and bad thing right? Um, you, you don't get people writing clunky, um, well, apart from me, you don't get people <laughs> sort of writing clunky, like John donne infected poems. And that's great. Um, at the same time, for the worse, I think lots of new writing that's coming out of Singapore doesn't have so much of a sense of what it's responding to in terms of historical work. At best, I think lots of New Singapore writers are responding to Singapore writers of the 80s and 90s. Um, or early 2000s, you know, early, early Elfian, early Yisheng, um, early Cyril. Um, and, and that's great. But, but those voices that they're responding to were themselves responding to older traditions. Um, and I don't see so much of a, a consciousness of that lineage in, in new Singapore writing. Whereas I think in the UK or at least new new writers in the UK are st- still sort of or have a deeper and longer understanding of what they're responding to, um, and and that's also a market that I I suppose the most recent book um, tried to speak to. Um, in any case, lots of the poems in the most recent book were written while I was in the UK and. Responding to the voices of those around me, who were in turn responding to the tradition that they saw. Um, so, so yes, different different sense of tradition, different sense of where we are, where we're from, and where we are going. And that's not a good or bad thing. Um, in in a sense, it's quite refreshing to have this sort of um, uh, uh, much shorter time time frame, time scale in Singapore. But sometimes that also um, leads to a kind of more homogenous, younger voice in Singapore, Um, because the frame of reference is so short and so similar.
2: Speaking of who we are and are not responding to, do you think there are any voices in local poetry who are under or overrepresented?
1: Um, Well, I (laughs) uh, under or overrepresented? Okay, not to... um, So I I think local poetry, insofar as published poetry goes, in the last 10 years has diversified by far, Mm. right? Um, And this is owing to the presence of independent publishers, independent bookstores, um, independent groups of readerships, um, the resurgence that we have seen in speculative writing, um, the foregrounding of of migrants' voices, of um, other sort of uh, narratives that would not have found as comfortable a place in Singapore writing um, 15, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. um, that's all to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so what else? What else? Where, where else are the gaps? I think um, we still uh, have quite a high proportion of Bukit Dima writing. Um, <laughs> and Laura Jean will have heard me use this, this phrase before. And, and by that, I mean a writing that sort of uh, comes out of the lyric Potential of privilege. And and I'm well, and I should start off by also saying that I myself have been guilty of this. And I think particularly in my third book, Giving Ground, although I um well not ventured near Bukitima in, in a while. Um, <laughs> but Giving Ground, I think, came out of my idea uh, at the time where I was heading off to university overseas of writing about um, the world as sort of this traveller figure that was passing through different contexts and sort of uh, through them seeing some reflection of Singapore. It was all very Italo-Calvino, all very um, uh, see the world through a grain of sand-ish um, thinking and, and without really questioning or thinking more deeply about the privilege of being able to move easily across borders. Um, the, the privilege also to be able to Navigate all these different, uh, I should also say European contexts, um, thanks to language and tradition and cultural familiarity and all of that. So I, so I think Moving House tries to interrogate all of that a lot more. So I like Moving House a bit more. Uh, but I think that the type of writing that, that Giving Ground, in a sense, fell into, I think that's still quite overrepresented in Singapore writing. And I think that's a problem. Um, I also think that there's another set of writing that's overrepresented you've started me off on an unstoppable (laughs) spiel now, um, is confessional writing. Um, And, uh, well, confessional writing has a very important place in the development of Singapore poetry, right? Um, Because uh, you you have uh, a whole generation in the sort of 80s and and mid 90s who were responding to the landscape um, and the changes in the landscape as they saw it. And we spoke a bit about this earlier. And then you have a, a wave of confessional poets in the early two thousands who are like, "Hang on, there's no space for us in this landscape that you're writing about, right? In this landscape that all you um, sort of Chinese male poets are writing about, chi- uh, Chinese male heterosexual poets are writing about, there's no space for my voice." And and confessional poetry in the early ni- early two thousands, sorry, was a very important um, vehicle for those voices to take their rightful place, which is. In the centre of the narrative, along with everybody else's. Mm-hmm. Today, however, I think um, there is a preponderance of confessional writing. Mm-hmm. And what do I mean by that? I think there are a lot of poets who are writing in a confessional mode of expression that foregrounds their, their own thoughts, feelings, and expressions about the world, mm-hmm. but without really a sense of how their own thoughts, feelings, and expressions fit in the wider landscape mm-hmm. or fit in the wider sort of societal picture there isn't so much of a sense of speaking into the world or speaking into a world or responding to what's out there in the world and it's more so about about me and what I'm feeling at this point in time and what I'm what I'm going through Um, and while all that is of course important um, it it tends to then become decontextualized Um, so so I think there's there's a lot of young confessional writing that's coming out that's that's quite, in a sense, um, self-concerned. Mm. Um, and and once again, I should say that this is not a bad thing, but I think there's a lot of it. and I think it it could be balanced out with a greater awareness about the, the world that these voices are speaking into. Mm. Um, so yes, I've just given you two very dangerous <laughs> answers to that question. Um, but there you go.
0: And sort of like with you know the, the current state of affairs with you know, Anglophone poetry publishing in Singapore. Do you see that, like, you know, changing the landscape? Do you see that changing, you know, the type of writing that's being produced?
1: Well, I think um, Singapore, well, Anglophone poetry publishing in Singapore has ebbed and waned, right? Um, I wrote um, a book chapter about this some time ago for the Singapore Book Publishing Association's sort of anniversary anthology. Um, And since then, since I wrote their book chapter, so much more has happened. I think I have to do a rewrite now. Um, But I think with those ebbs and wanes, sort of different kinds of concerns and voices get to take centre stage, and I think that's healthy. Um, Some may be familiar with the Red Wheelbarrow Press, um, which for a while in the uh, first decade of the 2000s was bringing out the voices of really good spoken word poets. And this was a time where spoken word was making a comeback in Singapore, um, a time where it was, it was easier to find performance venues where where open mics and poetry slams were being organized. And uh, these became a channel to surface new voices, some of, some of whom are very established voices today. Right, so, so the, a, a press emerged, um, was able to serve as a platform for these voices. Um, and, and had a tangible impact on the kind of poetry landscape that we have today. Today, publishers once again will come and go. Um, even the publishers that have stayed the course will transform over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, ethos Books is a prime example of this. I Speak of ethos with a lot of love. Um, and, you know, from, from first gen ethos to the current ethos uh, mandate and sort of path that they've carved out for themselves it's that's gone through a lot of change and that's a healthy thing right this the company has responded to its readership it's responded to to the market but also responded to their own artistic vision of what they want a good small press in Singapore to deliver mm. um, and I, I think that's great I think new presses will come along to fill the void where um, the where underrepresented voices become urgent enough mm. I should also say on that note that um, self-publishing has become a lot more viable today, mm. right? Um, a couple of migrant poets have self-published and their self-published work has been well-reviewed and indeed, reviewers um, have praised the potential of self-publishing to bring an unvarnished, unedited, ungate um, different voice into the world because of course when you go through conventional uh, publishing routes, right, there is some of that uniqueness that gets watered down. Mm. So, Self-publishing, huge potential. Thank you, internet. Um, uh, and it's great that we're seeing more of that as well.
2: So as a, you know, a reader of poetry and also an editor, most recently in your anthology collection, hmm. Some Dreams From Now, uh, <laughs> you can plug it, plugging it on this podcast as well. Um, what are some of your pet peeves or red flags when it comes to poetry?
1: Mm. Well, well. Thanks. first, thanks for the plug. Um, <laughs> Some Dreams From Now is a new anthology of old writing. Um, It is uh, an anthology that plumbs the depths of uh, one particular school's archives, the Raffles Institution Archives. Um, And uh, it is is a set of archives that has a particularly long history in Anglophone writing uh, in and from Singapore, um, simply because the school has been around for a while and for better or for worse, has that sort of institutional resources to keep these archives intact. And, um, and the stories that we see from, from this archive are um, the perspectives of a very small subset of students, but on a very dynamically changing city around them that has gone from being part of the British Empire to under Japanese occupation, to part of Malaya, part of Malaysia, and of course, where we are today. Um, so those perspectives, I think, are, are quite unique um, to have this sort of, of unbroken archival record um and i'm very proud to be able to present it with the help of a team of very dedicated and capable students so it's available in all good bookstores by which i mean kinokuniya um, and uh, <laughs> please please go pick up your copy um, but well coming back to your question about pet peeves as an editor um i think the well i've already mentioned one of my pet peeves which is self-indulgence um, i and i think the the other pet peeve that I would have is, uh, the, is, is when writers uh, perhaps hold too tightly to this idea that they are the sole creator of their work. Mm. Um, what do I not mean by that? I do not mean that copyright is unimportant. <laughs> so perish the thought. But what do I mean by that? I, I do mean that more writers should... Take a view of their work as something that is collaboratively created, whether that's with other writers and artists, or with an editor, or with the aesthetics of the publication, the journal, the website, whatever, that they eventually find themselves in the company of. Too many writers um, have hold to this notion of presenting their work in a vacuum, Mm. right? of them sitting at their tables um, and you know, coming out with something entirely untouched by the world and then for this to be presented on a presumably empty website devoid of context. <laughs> That's simply not the way publishing works, right? Mm. Publishing at its heart is the act of presenting a voice in a world. Mm. And publishing, the process of publishing thus has to be conscious of that world conscious of the community into which it's, it is speaking, the community it is joining, the conversation it's responding to, and the many others who work behind the scenes or in front of the scenes, as the case may be, to make that presentation of your voice possible. And uh, you can either work with them or against them, and it's very <laughs> annoying when poets <laughs> choose to work against them. Yeah, so that's that's my other pet peeve. Yeah.
2: What about, conversely, what about green flags?
1: Green flags? Um, I... Uh... Hmm... Oh, that's a great question. Okay, please cut out this part where I'm thinking. (laughs) One eternity later. Alright, so Green Flags as an editor, I think um, it's always really refreshing to read first a set of submissions that sticks within the submission (laughs) rules. So... Basics. Basics, yeah. If I say three to five pages, I'm not going to read the 17th page. <laughs> Too bad. Um, and and what, what this shows is a writer who is willing to think about and prioritize their best work um, and or to try out something new that they've written in a, in a different landscape and to sort of take the, the feedback and the verdict of a set of editors or a certain readership um, and learn from it. I think that's great, and I think that speaks to a deeper willingness mm-hmm. as a writer um, to recognize that the writing is only 5% of the work, right? The next 80% of the work is the editing, um, and the editing takes place in response to um, feedback, in response to readers, in response to um, sort of the wider conversation that you're speaking into. But the editing also requires you to put yourself in a position of your audience. It requires a lot of empathy. It requires you to realize that someone listening and hearing your voice for the first time will approach it very differently from the voice that's in your head, and that's entirely fine. And that's what it takes to put a voice in the world. It It requires you to first empathize with those whom you are about to inflict your voice on. So I've covered 5% Five percent and eighty percent. There's a the remaining fifty percent. That's the readership, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and including your first readers, that's your workshop group, your editor, etc. I've said a bit about that, but also the wider readership, mm-hmm. right? And the wider readership is essential to shaping the development of any writing career, mm-hmm. um, because uh, look, Shakespeare would have written very differently if he was alive today, thankfully, <laughs> and we would have written. Differently, if we lived in the time of Shakespeare, and that's that's fine. Mm. Your voice doesn't exist in a vacuum; mm. it should respond to the people whom you want to write for, mm. um, and uh, yeah, and they are just as important, or more important than you are.
2: Great! Thanks so much for Self that self-awareness. Yes, <laughs> it's important.
1: Yay.
2: So um, maybe we put out an open call for questions for you. Oh dear. Uh, <laughs> from our followers. <laughs> should so I be all... worried? <laughs> Ask you know, me anything. Big fans <laughs> of you.
0: I suppose, so I guess we'll ask a couple of questions from there. Yeah, I think we could ask like a fun one. There's this one that asks... Are there unfun ones? Uh, I mean, yeah, there, there, are <laughs> yeah there are more serious ones. Yeah, there are more serious <laughs> ones. Okay, but
1: let's do to, a fun like, one. yeah. 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 Up a bit.
0: What is your Desert Island Poetry <laughs> Playlist?
1: Ooh, okay, Desert Island Poetry Playlist. Um, well, if you're starting pro- from a point of farce and desperation, <laughs> then what you really want in your life is a bit of Kim Adonizio. Um, <laughs> Someone who is willing to take wise cracks at death, um, someone whose writing is as modern and trenchant as the best of them, um, and who can sort of write to you as if you're um, in a bar and having an argument with an old friend. Um, that's the sort of refreshing cold water-in-the-face writing that I would want on a desert island. And then maybe. I go for some sort of comfort um, mm. because I think I need that as well. Um, and for me, the comfort reading is always Sheamus Heaney.
0: Mm. Yeah. Wow, Kim <laughs> Madis- <laughs> Kimber and Isio Sheamus- and <laughs> Heaney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great combination. Not neither
1: without the other. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> great. Well, considering Spooch is. You know, a very youth-oriented <laughs> organization. How does it feel having been published so young at, I think, 18? I think that's not something that a lot of people can S- claim same to me, have Just done. Sarah about <laughs> my ad. <laughs> um,
1: I, I think that I would probably have done things very differently. But I think that at the time, I could not have done things any differently. Mm. Um, I think that... That first book was the product of Very Much Kindness. Um, I have written um, elsewhere before about the many chance encounters, um, most uh, most importantly with uh, Fong Ho Fang, who's the founder and, who was the founder and publisher of Ethos Books, um, that led directly to the conversations that seeded that collection. Um, looking back, I think um, I uh, would... What I would probably have done uh, and what I do tell my students today to do is to send their writing out to more places uh, first, journals, mm. um, magazines, etc. The practical reason, of course, is that after it appears in a book, no journal will take it. Um, <laughs> but the, the less practical reason is also that at that age and at that stage, what you really need is uh, readership. Mm. Um, you need an editor to tell you this isn't working. Mm. Um, you need readers uh, to tell you um, what, what hit them in the guts or didn't. Um, and you're not going to find that in your Sec 4 class, right? Um, or, or you might uh, if you have an unusually perceptive Sec 4 class. Sorry, everyone from 4P who is listening to this. Um, but I, but you, you simply need that wider um, set of reactions and you're not going to get that on your own. Um, so, so I would probably have done a bit more of that. But what I, what I lacked in that I made up with by having a very supportive editorial team at Ethos, mm-hmm. who was willing to very patiently work with me and tell me what was or wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, many of them are now no longer at Ethos. I think um, uh, Adelina, who was working on my book then, is now at The Projector. Um, Mr. Fong, of course, has gone on to many other adventures. Um, but I think that sort of supportive editorial culture Made up for a lot of my inexperience,
0: mm-hmm. and on top of maybe like the editorial culture, um, we also have a question that asks, "Who are your greatest inspirations and influences?" Speaking <laughs> of responding to people and being aware of,
1: well, I I was very fortunate to have uh, uh, some very important mentors quite early on in my writing life, um, and Elvin Pang, um, uh Cyril Wong. Darren Shell, Aaron Lee, I sort of learned different things from them at different points. Um, And they, of course, also were were speaking from a certain generation and set of experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And many of them, in fact, were published around the same time um, between 1995 and the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And apart from sort of this group of mentors, Mm -hmm. I think who I've also been really fortunate to meet, I think particularly in my time overseas, was uh, lots of friends um, from the British writing scene who are today carving out their own careers as writers. Um, And, uh, well, folks like Mary Jean Chan, um, uh, Phoebe Stoops, um, uh, Imogen Castles, um, and uh, Alan Buckley and many, many others um, who were very important parts of my time in the UK. Um, I owe a lot to them as well because they sort of showed me different ways of being a writer. Um, I think having, gone, having met the first set of names, I was very acquainted with one way of being a writer. Um, and, and the second set of names gave me many more pathways to that. What's most important, I think, for a young poet, there are two realizations. Um, the first is to see first a writer who looks and sounds like you. Mm. Um, I think there's nothing more powerful than that. It tells you that, oh, I also can, right? But then after that, it's equally important to meet lots of other writers who don't look and sound like you and who show you other ways of being yourself. Um, And they are the ones who will then prompt you to keep looking and keep experimenting and keep trying out new things.
0: That's so true.
2: I guess eventually the student becomes the teacher as well, right?
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy today to, to do a lot of teaching. Um, it takes me away from the office, which is amazing. Um, I, I love being in the classroom. Um, I really respect teachers who can do it full-time because it's very emotionally draining. But I do enjoy being in the classroom and working with students um, and finding new ways and new uh, kinds of content to bring to my students. Um, I'm very happy that Ben King and Annette Lee have made lots of fantastic (laughs) videos that I can use as as writing prompts. Um, But I'm also very grateful to all the Singaporean writers out there who have recorded yourselves reading out your poems and put it on YouTube. Um, Elvin Pung's video of himself reading the poem Candles I have used in so many workshops. Um, And and these are all fantastic uh, resources. But for me, being in the classroom or working with... um, two or three much smaller group of students um, in a mentorship setting. Um, That's that's very important to me because, well, sometimes I bring my own work to share and the students become my workshop group, um, and that's great. But sometimes also in in working with writers who are sort of at the start of their writing journeys and careers forces me to think again and again about actually what got me started and why I'm still here. And that's, that's very important for me.
0: Best piece of advice you can give as a friend?
1: As a friend? Um, be ready to tell your friend <laughs> when they've written a bad poem.
0: Yes, Oh, that's so hard. Yeah. That is it's so
1: hard, but it's so important because they're not going to hear it from their adoring fans or their distant acquaintances. Yes. Um, it takes a great deal of honesty. and. I mean a bad poem in every sense. I mean in an aesthetic sense, but I also mean in an ethical sense. And I think friends need to call each other out on our ethical failings, um, of which we all have many. Um, And it's it's important because um, if we see ourselves, writers, as people who speak into the world, um, and people who have a privileged platform to do so, Then you always need to be questioning the way that you use that platform, and you always need to um, have an awareness of whether um, of your own blind spots in doing so. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So uh, if any of my friends are listening to this, yeah, please hit me around the head um, if I've said something bad.
0: Um, And maybe sort of to wrap it up with a spicy question. (laughs) what is one thing you can't stand about writers and writing, and their writing? Yeah, writers and their writing.
1: Um, <laughs> I time. cannot stand. Um, well, this comes first to mind because I was just talking to another writer about this yesterday. Mm-hmm. I cannot stand the idea of the inspired writer. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's so many talks and workshops that you go to or you do, and then someone. And the audience sort of stands up and asks the stock question at the end to fill the silence which is where do you get your inspiration um,
0: yes, oh
2: my
1: gosh. Um, and and i think the idea of inspiration is a misplaced one mm-hmm. right because it sort of assumes that there are writers who are blessed by the angels um, for whom writing comes from an external source a muse a god <laughs> Uh, a sort of external, um, <clears throat> sort of almost divine source, mm-hmm. um, and that this this writer has to write by privilege of being the chosen one. Mm. I think this sort of plays into the image of the writer as someone who is, <clears throat> who is different from everyone else, mm. who is on a pedestal, who is um, uh, anointed to speak on behalf of others. Um, and I, at the bottom of my heart, reject that idea of the writer. Mm. To me, as I said earlier in this conversation, the writer is someone who simply, by good fortune or else, or by practice, uh, comes into possession of a set of skills, a set of tools. <clears throat> Anyone can come into possession of this set of tools, um, given sort of the right um, redistribution of resources, including cultural capital. Mm the right kinds of environments for people to learn and grow in. Um, anyone should be able to use language to make change in the world. It, you do not have to be inspired, you certainly do not have to live in Bukit Timah. <laughs> and, I, and I think at heart, the idea of writing as something that is open to anyone, and that can make any kind of change happen, mm. that possibility is preserved if we discard the idea of the inspired writer. Mm. Yeah.
0: That's great. Yeah
2: thanks so much for coming here today and speaking with us yeah and we really really enjoyed it
1: yeah thanks so much for having me
2: having, getting to hear what you have to say <laughs> yeah
1: yeah for all those who um, are just listening to this in a car or something we are actually in a very cozy confines of singlet station I urge you to pay a visit especially to come here for splucious events <laughs> Two or three weekends time On the
2: 25th of
0: March.
1: Yes thanks very much for filling in the day. and um, we have some fantastic people who are coming to read to us including a poet whom I'm very much a fan of Nathaniel Chu whose writing has also appeared in the recent Singap- new Singapore poetry anthology which you can also find at all good bookstores where you can find some reading for now. We will
2: probably be selling it there as well. Yes like last yes, time be available. Yeah. Session number two. Yes. Amazing. (laughs) See you all there. Bye Bye bye. Bye.